Will you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4? If you have a Bible, turn to Hebrews 4. If you don't, we want you to have one. And so Len and Larry and Jean have some Bibles. As they make their way back, get their attention. And they'll get one to you so you can follow along. They have it marked for you in Hebrews chapter 4. Many of you know that I was raised in a pastor's home. And as a pastor's kid or a PK, as those of us in that club often refer to ourselves, as a PK, you knew that there were certain expectations, not only from your family, but from folks in the church with regard to you. I knew that Kenny should be a good boy. Kenny should say the right things, do the right things, and avoid the wrong words and actions. And overall, I did pretty well with it. From all anyone could tell, I was a really good kid, a model pastor's child, an exemplary PK. But even at a young age, I knew that there was more to me than met the eye. There were times when I thought about things I shouldn't, and even said and did things that were wrong, but I was very careful to never say or do those things around church folks. But I have to tell you that even though I did say and do sinful things from time to time as a kid, it was just that from time to time and not very often, relatively speaking. Now, of course, that didn't mean that I was without much more sin than I or others knew. It was just that I or they didn't know it since I said and did mostly the right things. But there was something else about growing up as a pastor's kid, a PK. We as a family, and then in turn in church, engaged in some really wholesome and excellent activities. And I became really good at those activities. I learned the Bible, thanks be to God. And I learned its books, and I memorized verses, and I learned the characters and the stories at a very young age. And in our pastor's home... I did that better and more complete than the other kids in our church. I should just pause here and say we had a really small church. But still, for the few we had there, I did it better. I won the Sunday School Verse Memorization Contest, the Bible Drills. You know what a Bible drill is? It's uh, name a passage, and let's see who can find it the fastest. It was often first to correctly answer the Bible question. In our family, because it was the pastor's family, we were in the limelight in front of the church folks a good bit. Our family was up front and visible quite a lot. Of course, my dad preached every week. My younger brother and me would sing. Often, we did pretty well. The folks loved it, and they'd ask for us to do it, and so we did it often. If you were to ask me or anyone who knew me what kind of kid I was, the answer would have been very positive. Folks in the church would have said, he's a very, very good boy. Some would even add, the Lord's hand is on that young man. And I liked it a lot that people approved of me. Say and do the right things. Participate in godly activities. Be well thought of by godly people. If there was anything amiss, I didn't know it. No one else did. 
Who possibly could know it? When I was about 10, I'm guessing the age, it was around 10, I asked my mom what kind of Bible reading regimen I should get involved in. I don't think I said regimen at 10. What kind of Bible reading schedule should I undertake? She suggested I read the New Testament. And so I started with the first book, Matthew. And most of you know it begins with a genealogy, which in the King James Version I was reading would say this, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and he begat and he begat, and on it went. And then shortly thereafter, there's the story of John the Baptist. But then I came to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 begins what is undoubtedly the greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount from the lips of the Lord Jesus. And in the midst of that sermon, in the King James Version, Jesus says this, When thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Jesus went on to say, When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, They have their reward. And Jesus said again, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Glory of men, to be seen of men, that they may appear unto men, all of these described me. And all were followed with this haunting, convicting phrase, they have their reward. If there was anything wrong with me, who could know? I didn't. Others didn't. Jesus did. And Jesus spoke to me in words that cut me like a knife. I knew that despite all the good things said and done and sung, I did not do that for God, but for me. And I liked it that people approved of me. But Jesus condemned that people-pleasing motivation and struck the heart of a little boy with his incisive words. It would be about nine years later that I would finally come to see the solution to the problem that Christ's words had exposed years years earlier. In my teen years, I continued to mostly say and do the right things. I continued to enjoy the approval of people. But I also found myself in situations where the sinful heart of the 10-year-old manifests itself in the words and behavior of a teen. Not, quote, too bad if you're comparing me to other teens. In fact, pretty good. But Jesus had exposed my heart, and I knew that my heart was not 
his. Though I did grow up in a godly pastor's home, I did not grow up Baptist. My dad died when I was 11, but he and my uncle who followed him as the pastor, they erroneously believed and taught that you had to maintain your own salvation. That it was up to you once you had come to Christ, which I thought I had, it was up to you to ensure that you lived well enough to make it. By most measures, I lived well enough. But I was uneasy about where I stood with the Lord. I had the privilege of attending a a Christian high school, the same school my girls now attend, inner city Christian school. During a chapel service there, there was an invitation, and one of the questions of that invitation was, if you're unsure that you are saved, raise your hand. I raised my hand. And one of my teachers saw me raise my hand. This teacher was a dear, godly saint named Bob Curry. He's a member at Evangel Baptist Church in Taylor. Some of you know Bob. He saw me raise my hand, and later that day he called me to his office. He opened the Bible and he showed me that there were people that God declared to be his children despite their own sin struggles. And so the Bible had shown me that there was more to me than meets the eye. And the Bible had taught me that it was not about how good I am or what I can maintain. And so that came to fruition when I was 19. And thanks for bearing with me. At age 19, I was in my bed one night. I was reading the Bible, and I will never forget then coming across these words in the Word of God. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And the word of God struck me again and pierced my heart again. Because the truth is, boasting was a big deal to me. The approval of of people was a big deal to me. And I could even think in my sinful mind and heart that one day I would be able to boast before God. But God's word cut me at age 10. Pierced me in high school. And it spoke to me in a saving way. Thanks be to God at age 19. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12. The word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, how can a book do that? Well, it does so because it's not just any ordinary book. The book that you hold in your hand is the word of the living God. And as such, it has properties and qualities that no other book has. 
Friends, there is nothing. There is nothing like the Bible. And those words in themselves should cut us to the heart. Because the truth be told, we often take the word of God very flippantly and very lightly. Do we not? Now, though, as we will see, the fact that God has given us this extraordinary gift as his word, it has many positive applications. The passage, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, is actually set against a warning about disregarding the word of God. Just think of it this way. What if you had a battery of tests, a bunch of examinations that indicated that you have cancer, but you just ignored the doctor's instructions? Or what if you knew that you had family history for a particular disease, and your family and your doctor warn you time and again, but you just refuse to submit to the exam at all? Friends, that's what it's like when we ignore what God has said or simply neglect to consult what God has to say. And so when I say there's nothing like the Bible, it has these qualities and these abilities that we're going to survey briefly. But when we say that, if you agree with that, then you should be like I am convicted of our neglect, our disregard very often for this precious thing that God has given to us. We're warned about the consequences of such disregard of God's word. That warning begins from the writer of Hebrews back in chapter 3 and verse 7, where a section from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, is quoted. It's from Psalm 95. It's a passage about the unbelief of the people whom God graciously delivered from slavery in Egypt. Many of you know that story from the first part of your Bible. But you also know they disobeyed God's word. And therefore they missed what the writer of Hebrews calls God's rest in the promised land. And that section of your Bible is quoted in chapter 3 of Hebrews twice. And in this chapter 4, three times. That extended warning beginning in chapter 3 and verse 7 extends through the first half of chapter 4. It's summarized in verse 11. Look with me at verse 11 of Hebrews 4. Let us, unlike them, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Disobedience to what? Disobedience to God's word. And then verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. The reference to a sword in verse 12 is no accident, of course, because it points to the very incident about which Psalm 95 is quoted in chapters 3 and 4. You see, when God brought them out of Egypt and they refused to obey his command and go in and take the land that he had promised them, many of them fell by the sword that day, the Bible tells us. God gave direct instruction to go in and take the land he told them, I will be with you and you will be victorious. But because they didn't believe, they disobeyed and they refused to go in. And as a result, God says to Moses in Numbers chapter 14, not one of them will ever see the land. 
And the Bible tells us in Numbers 14, when Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. We have sinned, they said. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised. Now get this. They're saying that the declaration that they would never see the land has sobered them. And it's caused them to change their tune. And they say, we're now prepared to believe. But the fact is, it was too late. And Moses tells them, again in Numbers 14, do not go up. Because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, He will not be with you. Now hear this. And you will fall by the sword. But they compound their error. Not only by disobeying God's word the first time initially. Now get this. They try to fix the disobedience by disobedience. crazy. And I can't tell you how many times I have counseled people who do that. Compound the disobedience by trying to fix it with more disobedience. So somebody sins in their marriage. And they decide that the solution to that is to disobey God's word again. They've been a jerk of whatever sort. They've not lived according to biblical principles. So here's the solution. Disobey God and break up the marriage. I'm thinking not. Or the professing Christian girl who's dating an unbeliever. Which is a problem all by itself. She sins sexually by being active before marriage. By the way, did you all know that that's a sin even in 2009? That sex is reserved for marriage? But she sins by being sexually active before marriage. She gets pregnant. What's the solution? Marry the unbeliever. I don't think so. Or perhaps one or both doesn't want to get married. So they go their separate ways. But she continues to date unbelievers because she's got to find a good father for the child. We disobeyed the first time. We'll compound the error by disobeying a second and a third and on it goes. We laugh at the foolishness of the Israelites. It happens every day. Even by professing Christians. And so the Bible says, Numbers 14, Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went. Though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant went with them. And lo and behold, the Amalekites and the Canaanites came down and attacked and routed them with the sword. And so in Hebrews chapter 4, which alludes to this whole incident of unbelief and disobeying God's word, it mentions a sword for a reason. It's a subtle reminder for us not to disregard God's word as Israel did in the wilderness. And friends, Hebrews 4 verses 12 and 13 gives us four reasons not to disregard God's word. And I have them for you in the outline that was inserted in your program. If you'll take a look at that. 
The first reason that we're given that we must obey God's word is because it is alive. Verse 12, the word of God is living and active. It's alive and it is active because it endures forever. Psalm number 119 and verse 89 says this, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. This word that is eternal is the product of the very breath of God. So 2 Timothy 3.16 in your Bible says, All scripture is God-breathed. It is the product of the very breath of God. And as such, the Bible partakes of the character qualities of God himself. I read an illustration recently of a guy who was tasked with translating the Bible from one language into another. He was taking the original manuscripts, copies of original manuscripts of the Bible, the New Testament in particular, written in Greek, and he was translating those into another language. And the fellow says of that experience, he said, I felt like I was dealing with something which was actually alive as I translated the Word of God. In fact, there's a fairly famous interview with this scholar on BBC television. He was a British scholar where he talks about this activity of translating the precious Word of God and how he sensed that it was it was, in a sense, alive. And the Bible tells us that not only is it alive, but it is, it is active. Because it's alive, it's active, or you might use the word effective. That is, the Word of God is effective. It will accomplish its purpose for which it is given. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11. God says, my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It did that in me. When I read the word of God as a 10-year-old boy, when I was shown the word of God as a high schooler, when I read the word of God at age 19, God had a purpose in all of that. His purpose was to bring me to himself. To convict me of my sin. To cut deeply in places that no one but God would know about. And it achieved that very purpose. Hear me, friends. It achieved that purpose in me. And the Word of God will achieve that purpose in you as well. But we're going to see that God gives us these warnings. About not turning away from His Word. So that. His good purposes are come to fruition in our lives. Why must we obey God's word? Because it is alive. Here's a second reason. We obey God's word because it's penetrating. Notice what the passage says again in verse 12. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And when it says dividing soul and spirit, what some folks have done is have said, well, since the Bible mentions soul and spirit, and we know we have a body, then we must be made up of three parts. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. And that's part of what's being taught here. That's not what's being taught here. The truth of the matter is, I, I can't tell you what the difference between a soul and a spirit is. 
I have no earthly idea. Because the Bible doesn't describe that. Most often when the Bible talks about the human person, it talks about simply a physical component and a spiritual component, a material component and immaterial component. And here it's simply saying soul and spirit. It's using two words for that immaterial portion to simply say God's word has the ability to cut to places that no one or no thing can. Because it's God's word, as we will see, it knows us like no one or no thing else. Some of you are familiar with John Bunyan and his classic Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, it is about a pilgrim, a journey. And it talks about the progress of this Christian pilgrim on his journey. And in the journey, he meets a number of characters, a number of very memorable characters, if you ever have an opportunity to to read it. There's a portion where Mr. Greatheart, one of the characters, gestures approvingly to another character, Mr. Valiant for Truth. And here's what he says. Thou has worthily behaved thyself. Let me see thy sword. And so he showed it him. And when he had taken it into his hand and he looked thereon a while, he said, Ha, it is a right Jerusalem blade. Then said Mr. Valiant for Truth, It is so. Let a man have one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it, and he may venture upon an angel with it. He need not fear its holding if he can but tell how to lay on. Its edges will never blunt. It will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit and all. And what was he talking about? The sword of the Word of God. Just as an illustration of how the Word of God penetrates places that no one or no thing can. Some of you know the name George Whitfield. He was a great revivalistic preacher of what's called the First Great Awakening. Many thousands of people came to Jesus Christ through the preaching of George Whitfield. But George Whitfield, this illustration from his life, proves that the Word of God can pierce anyone. He was hounded, Whitfield was, by a group of detractors. They were called the Hellfire Club. And they would sometimes come to his meetings and they would deride his work and they would mock him. And on one occasion, one of them, a guy named Thorpe, was mimicking Whitfield to his cronies, delivering his sermon delivering, mocking like he's delivering Whitfield's sermon. He's doing it with brilliant accuracy. And he's perfectly imitating his tone and his facial expressions. When this guy who's mocking Whitfield was so pierced that he sat down and he was converted on the spot. Thorpe went on, by the way, to become a prominent Christian leader in England. He was a nasty guy doing a nasty thing. But he was no match for the penetrating word of God. We must obey God's word, friends, because it is alive and because it's penetrating. Notice a third reason that we're given. We obey God's word because it is discerning. The last part of verse 12, it, the word of God, judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. 
When the Bible uses the heart, it's referring to the center of the human person. Who we really are. I mean, there is our external persona. There is who other people think we are. But the heart is who we really are. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart of man is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah asked. God knows it. And thus the word of God exposes it. And so it's the discerner of the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart, the real self, the center of who we are. And when verse 12 says it judges the heart, the Greek word is krites. We get our word critic or criticize from it. The word of God criticizes. Now, it's constructive criticism as we will see ultimately. But that constructive criticism often involves pain first. As we are judged, as we are evaluated for who we really are. It says it judges, it criticizes the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Thoughts, attitudes. David Pollison, who's an author that I respect greatly, he edits the Journal of Biblical Counseling. We have some of his books on our resource table. Pollison says you could think of the thoughts as what most people refer to when they say, I feel that. These are my thoughts. And you ever notice how many times we express our thoughts in terms of emotion? Well, I feel that. And God is saying, I judge your feel that. And the attitudes are often expressed in, I feel like. And God is saying that I, in the word of God, judge your feel likes as well. And so, friends, would you not agree with me? We've got to lose the habit that so many of us are in. Where we make up our own rules. And we say, I feel that. And I feel like. And the truth of the matter is, and I don't mean this to be unnecessarily unkind. But who really cares what Ken feels? That Ken feels that. Or that Ken feels like. And further, who really cares that you feel that or you feel like what really matters, does it not, is what God says. And what God says trumps, judges, critiques what we feel, what we think, what we say. That's why Ephesians 6.17 in your Bible says, The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. We are warned by James in James chapter 1. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. That critique that God does is ultimately constructive. But he has to cut us first before he can do his healing work. A friend, understand this. That's always God's intention. It's always God's intention to heal the wound that the sword of his spirit makes. 
But he must first cut us, convict us. And so often that's the reason we don't want to open the Bible, because it hurts. The reason we don't want to look in the mirror is because it's painful. I know that. I've been there. I've done that. But God, hear this, God has a gracious purpose in causing us to see us as we, ourselves as we really are and face up to who we really are and cut through the excuses. God has a gracious purpose in that. And here's why. Because when He forces us to see who we are, when He cuts us with the Word of God, it drives us to Him asking for His mercy and grace. And that is an act of grace in itself. God cuts us to heal us. We must obey God's word because it's alive and it's penetrating and it is discerning. And fourthly, we must obey God's word because it is, in fact, God's word. That's what verse 13 is all about. This word that comes from God that has these extraordinary qualities, it has these extraordinary qualities because it's God's word. And notice verse 13 then. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. God knows all. God knows everything. He knows every last thing about you and about me. We can run, but we cannot hide. Now, the fact that God knows everything about me and everything about you and everything that's going on in our lives, very often Scripture gives that as it is a comfort. The Lord knows. The Lord knows what I'm going through. He's with me. That's all true. But friends, when we disobey, that can be a terror as well. God knows. I'll tell you that it comforts me when I'm walking with the Lord. It's a terror to me when I'm not. But it comforts me as a pastor, I will tell you this, it comforts me as a pastor to know that the true and living God knows all. Here's why. Because I'm so thankful for this group of sheep that God has given to this church. So thankful. Praise God for all of you. The truth is, I don't know everything that's happening with you. I'll never know everything that's happening with you. I can do all that I can. We can do all we can together to minister the Word of God to each other. But we don't know all about each other. Somebody can have something going on that I don't know about, may not know about, ever. Or it may not be exposed until years later. But I take great comfort in the fact God knows all. God is at work. And it's God's gracious desire, friend, for you to hear a message like this. So that the God who knows all will call you back to himself if, in fact, you're wandering from him. We obey God's word because it is, in fact, the word of the God who knows all. And so Proverbs 15 and verse 3 says this, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Psalm 90 and verse 8, that was read in part as part of our service earlier. You, O Lord, have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. 
And so why do we obey it? We obey it because it's God's word. A.W. Tozer, some of you know that name, a great Christian author of days past, says this about the comprehensive knowledge of God. Here's what Tozer says. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind. All spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, causes, thoughts, mysteries, enigmas, feeling, desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions and personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. He's right. God knows everything about everything and everyone. And so we obey God's word because it's God's word. And here's what verse 13 tells us. Because it's God's word, nothing's hidden. Everything is, notice, uncovered. That's the word for naked. Cover as we will. Cover with our words. Cover with our schemes. We are all uncovered. Before the all-seeing eye of the true and living God. And it says uncovered and, notice the phrase, laid bare. That word that's translated laid bare has to do with twisting a neck or putting on one's back. The idea is that we are naked before God. Nothing will cover who we really are, what we're really about before God, and He can put you down, put me down. He has the ability to lay us prostrate before him. Nothing secret. He's the end of verse 13, the one to whom we must give an account. So friends, why try to fool me? Why try to fool your spouse? None of us can fool God. He's the one to whom we must give an account. Now let me conclude with just a few comments. I want to ask you, friends, do you love the Word of God? This Word of God that is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Do you love the Word of God? If not, when we bow and pray in just a moment... Repent of your coldness toward this marvelous gift that God has given us, His Word. How will I know if I love the Word of God? Do you read it? Do you read it regularly? Do you know what God says and what God says about God? What God's like? What God says you're to be like? What God says He expects of us? The resources that God provides for us? Do you know those things by virtue of reading The word of God that he has given to you and me as a gracious gift. Do you read it? You know, you're associated with a church that believes the word of God completely. That will do as long as God gives me the breath and the ability. We will teach it and preach it as clearly, as passionately, as best we can. You're associated with a church like that. That's a marvelous gift. So how much do you care about that? You're here today. I'm thankful for that. 
Do you avail yourself of every opportunity that you can make to learn the Word of God? We have studies on Wednesday evenings. You say, I have to get to work early. I can't come on Wednesday evening. Okay, I'm good with that. You work afternoons. We offer the same classes on Tuesdays, Tuesday mornings. So let me know if you would like to be part of that. Do you read it? Do you avail yourself of every opportunity to learn it? Dr. William Rice, some of you know that name. He was the founding pastor of Inner City Baptist Church in Allen Park. He was the pastor there when I was in high school. And so we would hear him speak in chapel as kids a number of times. He was always a very intimidating guy to us, to us kids. And frankly, you know, we, we knew everything, as all teenagers do. And so we would only give a little bit of an ear. But here I am at 47. I still remember him saying that when someone comes to me for counsel, the first question that I ask them is, are you in the Word of God every day? And I remember as a smart aleck teenager thinking, so that's your simplistic counsel? Read the Bible? And the older I get, the smarter he becomes. Right? How many of us need counsel? Primarily because we don't get counsel from God through His Word on a regular basis when it's available to every last one of us. Do you love God's Word? Do you read it regularly? Do you avail yourself of every opportunity to learn it? Friends, why should we do that? Notice the take-home truth in your outline. Because God has graciously, graciously given us His Word to heal our sin-sick souls. God gave me His Word to cut to me as a boy and then as a teenager and then as a young adult to bring me to Himself. And you know what? I still struggle. I still struggle. This side of heaven, I will continue to struggle with some of those same sins of motivation. Kenny, why do you do what you do? Do you do it for the approval of people? Or do you do it ultimately for the approval of God? Why do you do what you do? I struggle with that still to this day. And I have the Word of God given to me as a gift to not only judge me, but to heal me. To tell me that I've strayed from the path and to bring me back to the path. You need that as well. Let's bow before our God. Friends, we're going to pray as we always do. We're going to give opportunity now for you to do business with God. That would just say, let's just not go through the motions every week. When we look into God's Word, it's just what we do. It's just part of the service for so many of us. But it should be so much more than that. It's an encounter with our God in the pages of His Word, the mirror of His Word. And we should never come away the same as we arrived. We should be changed by the Word of God. There should be commitments that we make, confessions that we give to our God every time the Word of God is open before us. And so I pray that we'll do that now. As we bow before the Lord, let's confess the sin of indifference and disregard for the Word of God. Confess the sin of coldness 
toward the Word of God, of arrogance, elevating our own opinions, our feel-likes and feel-thats above that of the Word of God. Let us ask God for the grace that He delights to give to mind the pages of the Word of God, to get from it what He intends for us. Our Father, we come before You as Your people. And Lord, I and I trust many other brothers and sisters are cut to the heart as we remember the lengths to which You have gone to give us Your Holy Word. As we remember that it's Your Word, that You have good purposes for it in our lives then, Lord, we are cut to the heart as we think about the many times that we disregard it, that we disobey it, that we don't believe it. I pray, Lord, that confession is taking place in this sacred moment. And I pray that as a result of that confession, the first part of your intention to judge, to criticize, has been accomplished so that now we can move to the second and ultimate thing you desire for us to heal us, to bring us back to yourself to instruct us, to guide us with the light of your word. I pray, Lord, that beginning this very day, that your people will have a renewed commitment to the word of God and the God of that word. For the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.